Hello, and welcome to another episode of CM Conversations. I'm Cameron Ramsden, Medical Imaging Business Manager at CM Medical, and I'm your host for today. I'm incredibly passionate about medical imaging, especially about startups who have the potential to disrupt the status quo and bring value to patients which isn't currently available. With artificial intelligence dominating medical imaging, I've taken a particular interest in startups which have disruptive potential outside of AI. In this episode, I speak with Bob Prue, CEO of Imagine Biosystems. Imagine are aiming to shake up the traditional approach to medical imaging using a combination of high sensitivity imaging technologies with cancer specific nanoparticles. We covered what it's like raising funding during COVID, what being classified as an FDA breakthrough device actually means, and their partnership with Siemens Health and Ears. Enjoy. So welcome, Bob, to CM Conversations. I suppose I should start by congratulating you on the recent five million in funding. Yeah, great. Thanks for the invite here. Uh, we're uh, pretty excited about the um, recent capital raise because it, it really sets us up for making sure we can get through our, our next significant set of milestones. Brilliant, brilliant. And I suppose taking things back a little bit and providing a little bit more of an introduction, tell us a little bit about the company and what you're aiming to do. Imagine Biosystems was founded just about four years ago. It was actually in a different form previously. It had been, uh, the company actually had been founded back in the late 1990s, early 2000s by a scientist out of Los Alamos National Labs who'd funded the company through a series of uh, government grants for quite a few years. Um, he sold the company to another small incubating company um, that uh, didn't, didn't go very far with further development of the technology, but clearly saw the potential value of it. And so four years ago, we spun that company out and formed Imagine Biosystems and restructured and recapitalized it because we could see that the potential was really there, but it needed the appropriate funding and corporate structure in order to be able to really you know, get through what was necessary. So uh, in the last four years, we've now managed to make very good progress to where the, we're at the point where we're just a a few months away from doing our first human clinical studies. Okay, that's interesting. So how, how did you become aware of the company? So I've been working in the life sciences for 30 plus years, mostly in the commercial sides of the business, uh, marketing, sales, uh, global you know, commercialization of technologies, um, things from genetics and genomics databases to in vitro diagnostic products and other types of medical devices and diagnostics. For about five years prior to this uh, organization, I'd been working very similarly in the cancer research space on some technology related to liquid biopsy and single uh, circulating tumor cells in blood samples. Um, A friend of mine's brother was an investor in the prior parent, and they were looking for some people to maybe help shore up the board or to help uh, provide some leadership. And that introduction led to my getting connected to the company and... um, I very quickly, once I started to kick the tires, so to speak, um, became very interested in this business um, because a a couple of things, I think from a career perspective, this is by far and away the uh, um, thing that I've had, will be doing that will have the most significant impact. So a lot of the technologies I've worked on have been very interesting, very cool technologies. Um, but are you know one or two steps removed from the direct patient impact, uh, things that will improve laboratory procedures or might improve our ability to research things. 
this is clearly something that if we are able to implement it, um, it will change uh, clinical care and practice and change healthcare for many people. And that's very, was very exciting to me. Um, the other thing was that it, um, it was very obvious to me that uh, what I say, this is incredibly elegant in its simplicity, the way the technology works. It's, um, it hasn't invented something. It's not so much that it's invented something completely new, but it's put two and two together in a way that's not previously been done. I suppose it's your first foray into medical devices versus the life sciences world. How have you found that? It's been a pleasant surprise uh, insofar as um, uh, it's not that far off from in vitro diagnostics. Um, there's still the challenges associated with technology development. There's a bit more rigor involved, especially in our case, since we are actually doing something where there's uh, an injectable solution that goes into a patient. So there's another set. It's a little closer to um, the pharmaceutical and drug world from that perspective. So that's been uh, an interesting learning experience uh, from that perspective. But um, we received uh, FDA uh, designation as a breakthrough device, which was mm -hmm. um, very critical uh, from the perspective that um, it will help facilitate our relationship with the FDA as we move forward um, and, and that. But I, I think that uh, the fact that we're playing in a space as a breakthrough device that um, has, has, from the FDA's perspective, said that if this works the way you think it's going to work, this will change medical practice, has been a big inspiration for, for the team here. And so um, I, I, I've, I've loved the fact that... Um, we're actually playing in a space where we can actually make a difference if, if we can bring this to market. Yeah, I read about the, the breakthrough status. Um, what does that actually mean on a, on a practical level then? Does it give you access to supports that you otherwise wouldn't have got? Um, it doesn't change the hurdles that we're going to have to go through in order to get regulatory clearance. Um, what it does do is it changes the time frame that you have to interact with the FDA. Um, so normally there's a a rather rigorous um, and set set of timelines that you have uh, when you do submissions to the FDA, whether it be for a drug or a device of some kind. Achieving the breakthrough status um, allows them to uh, give us a little bit more of their attention on a faster basis. So when we do do a submission, we can, we can um, shorten the topics to small topics and say, we need to meet with you and discuss this quickly. And they're very responsive to that. And so it facilitates the dialogue more um, on an expedient fashion rather than, as I said, rather than changing the hurdle that I have to go after, it allows us to get there quicker from the perspective of I can have smaller, bite-sized, if you will, dialogues with them to make sure we're on track. I suppose that's probably a good segue to actually talk about the, the product and what it actually does. Um, we've covered the history in a little bit, but we haven't actually given that overall view of you know, what the company does and, and how it's different to what's out there at the moment. Yeah, so today we've got five ways to image the body, basically. Uh, MRI, CT, ultrasound, X-ray, and positron emission tomography. Yeah. Um, everybody's aware of a mammogram being a form of an X-ray where you can see a spot, but you can't tell if it's a benign uh, tumor or a malignant cancer, right? So all these imaging methods are very well designed to identify broken bones, uh, look for fetal monitoring, uh, look at aberrations in soft tissue, but they can't tell you if what they see is cancer or not cancer. So they identify regions of interest or suspicious lesions, 
but can't really confirm. So the only way today that we actually confirm and diagnose the presence of cancer is an invasive procedure where we have to take a biopsy of the tissue. Could be by a fine a needle aspirate, or it could be a surgical excision of the tissue, and then we go look in the laboratory, uh, staining for tumor cells, and look under the microscope and say, are there tumor cells? Or, uh, yes or no. And so that's the challenge that we've tried to overcome. We're, we're developing a new sixth way um, that uh, identifies the presence of the tumor in vivo in the body because we use uh, magnetic particles that have a, a targeting ligand or targeting molecule on them that allows the particle to bind to tumor cells if the tumor is present. And those particles have a very unique property that the magnetic property of the particle only generates a magnetic signature if they're bound to the tumor cells. If the particles are free in circulation, they don't generate a magnetic signature, but if they become bound to the tumor cells, then they generate a magnetic signature. So we have a really clear separation of just particles that have been administered to the patient but haven't found tumor versus those that have been administered to the patient and actually find the tumor. So when we see what we call a magnetic hotspot, we know that those particles have accumulated at a tumor because we know those particles are bound to tumor cells by the targeting ligand that we've attached to them. At that stage then, is that enough to give the radiologist you know, kind of a definitive answer to what we're dealing with or would that lead to you know, a follow-up MRI, CT? You can think of it as a non-radioactive version of a, of a PET test. So it's a hot spot detection that says there's, there's a location here where we've had an accumulation of these particles and we know these particles are highly specific to HER2 breast cancer or highly specific to prostate cancer. So we know that the cancer is there and we know that it's in this spot. Now, you can do one of a couple of things then. You could then do an MRI, for example, to actually um, get an image of the entire tissue and visualize then. The nice thing is our particles also generate MR contrast. So you could see the hot spot of our particles in the context of the actual MR image and say, ah, we now see the tissue, we see where the particles have accumulated, so we now know, in fact, this is a prostate cancer tumor, and here it is, and here's exactly where it is within the prostate. Um, ultimately, you'll probably still want to do a biopsy to now look at the heterogeneity of that tumor, right? So exactly what's the molecular construct of that tumor, because that's really what's going to dictate the, the treatment regimen. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to eliminate doing biopsies on patients who actually don't have cancer, yeah. right? So by being able to give them a non-invasive test and say yes or no, do, is, is what we see a tumor, a, a cancerous tumor to worry about, or is it something else? That's really what we're trying to get to. And so I think the best way to illustrate that is this first test that we're doing for lymph nodal detection. Today, patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer, the first thing you want to know is, has the cancer spread to the lymph nodes and begun to metastasize? Yeah. Well, more than 50% of patients um, are node negative, but they have to have a biopsy of the nodes to find that out. So we're doing biopsies on half of the patients only to tell them there was nothing there, right? If we could eliminate that and say, okay, we now know the patient has a breast cancer. We want to know as it spread to the lymph nodes, we'll give them the MagSense test and do a hotspot detection. If we don't see any signal in the lymph nodes, don't worry about it. It hasn't metastasized and go ahead and just treat the primary tumor. Yeah. But if it has metastasized and we do know that there's, there's tumor cells in the lymph nodes, now you can take a course of treatment to either a treat more aggressively with chemotherapy or a targeted molecule like Herceptin, 
or you could say, let's go ahead and remove the lymph node because we know it's invasive in the, in the lymph node. So we're, we're trying to eliminate unnecessary biopsies as a primary use of our technology, not necessarily to, to replace biopsies, but to, to avoid the unnecessary ones. Yeah, understood. And am I right in saying that the technology allows you to detect smaller tumors than the typical MRI or CT scan that currently would be used? So today, uh, typically the physicians want to see um, somewhere close to a one centimeter sized uh, tumor before they're able to really determine that that's a suspicious lesion, right? So it has to be big enough for them to say the spot that we see is clearly different from the surrounding tissues uh, that's there. Um, with our technology, that hot spot should be able to be visible when it's only about one or two millimeters in size, because wow. it's very, it's a very unique spot, right? Where it's, it's only generating. So we, we call it a magnetic beacon. It's sort of like, all right, this thing lights up as a magnetic signature and we don't need very many tumor cells in order for our particles to bind and generate that magnetic signature. So we're expecting that our technology could be more sensitive than MRI or CT, and probably getting close to the sensitivity of, of, of pet tracers, which are you know using radioactivity. So if we could avoid using pet tracers and have a similar level of sensitivity, now we've got something that really fits in between the current um, uh, imaging methods like MR and CT being more sensitive and giving that same sort of hotspot detection, but without using radioactivity. We've spoken about breast cancer there, but I think from some of the things that I've read, I've been told that you're not a breast cancer company. Yeah, we like to say that we're not a one-trick pony, so <laughs> yeah. to speak, right? Um, and so if you think about this, um, our first indication that we're going after is this, is this breast cancer application, but the technology is broadly applicable. Um, the trick to that then is that I need to know that I have a targeting molecule on my nanoparticles it's highly specific for each type of cancer that we're interested in trying to identify. Unfortunately today, a cancer, uh, we tend to think of cancer as a disease, but it's not. Each different type of cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, these are all different types of diseases. They don't, they don't all um, have the same kind of genetic mutations. And so unfortunately today there isn't one targeting ligand that will, that's known and, and, and well-recognized that would target all forms of cancer. So we have to find a way to target breast cancer. We have to find a way to target prostate cancer. We have to find a way to target ovarian cancer based on its molecular characteristics. And so for each type of cancer, we'll develop a unique MagSense nanoparticle formulation that we know to be highly specific for prostate cancer or highly specific for ovarian cancer. And so our technology is not going to be a general purpose screening tool. Once a year, once a year you'll go into the, and have a, have a MagSense test to say, do I have cancer anywhere? That's not the intention of what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to, you're a man over the age of 40, you've had a PSA test, your PSA is elevated, you've got a family history of risk of cancer, now I want to know, is my PSA blood test elevated because I actually have uh, malignant prostate cancer? Or is it elevated because maybe I have benign prostate hyperplasia or, or something? And so rather than do a biopsy, you could have a MagSense test and we would tell you yes or no, the particles have accumulated in the prostate. Same kind of thing for ovarian cancer. You have a woman who's over the age of 50 who's had a blood biomarker test for CA125. Well, 
that could be elevated for a number of different reasons. But if she has a family history of cancer and she's got an elevated CA125 test, she could be given a MagSense test and we could say yes or no, whether or not there's uh, potentially uh, a cancer to worry about there. Or no, don't worry about it. The CA125 is elevated for another reason. We still want to understand why it's elevated, but it's not yeah. for cancer, right? So we're, we're really in that space where we're looking at patients who have identified risk factors. And do you want to do a biopsy? Or is there a non-invasive test that we could do that would satisfy a yes, no answer? Okay. So with breast cancer being the immediate priority, how close, um, what's the timeline for that for the MagSense product to be actually commercially available? And then from there, how long do you think it would take before we start to see some of the other indications addressed? Yeah, so uh, we are, I'd say the commercial availability for the breast cancer test is two stages now. So the next stage, the most immediate thing we have is to do a small first in human study. So we're planning for that to start the fourth quarter of this year. So just coming up in a couple of months. Yeah, so we're really close to our first clinical work. Um, that's going to be a relatively small study of between 10 and 20 patients. So this is sort of the initial finger in the wind. Can we dose these patients with our HER2 nanoparticles? Um, do, does it administer safely? Do we have no adverse reactions when the patient is given our nanoparticle solution? And secondly, get that initial assessment that if there are tumor cells in the lymph nodes, do we see a magnetic signature? And if there were no tumor cells in the lymph nodes, did we not see a magnetic signature? So just that initial assessment. If that goes well, as we expect, then we will gear up to do a larger 200 to 300 patient study that would be used for our regulatory submission and get commercial clearance. So there's the, the two milestones that we're really looking at are sometimes starting that study in the next three months and probably finishing it within six to nine months. And based on those data, then immediately start to work towards a larger study over the next 18 to 24 months that would allow us to start to commercialize the technology because we'll have data that say, this is all you know, highly likely that it's gonna work. What we didn't wanna do is fund a 200 or 300 patient study with no evidence that it was gonna work in human subjects, yeah. right? So um, we have really, really good preclinical data in mouse models and, and animal models. But as we all know from the drug world, you, we've cured a lot of mice of cancer, but we've never, you know, we don't cure people all the way. Yeah. Well, we're not trying to cure patients, we're trying to detect cancer. So I think the risk is different but still, we thought that rather than go to the expense of funding a 300-patient study, let's fund a 20-patient study first and see where we are. In the meantime, while we're working towards that, we'll begin to, we'll, we're developing the pipeline for prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, et cetera. So if we, when, by the time we get our first clearance for the HER2 breast cancer, we should have prostate cancer and ovarian cancer already moving towards our clinical studies. And so you know, there'll be a pipeline of products that come pretty quickly thereafter. So I think we can think of this as a two-step approach, near-term milestone of first in human within the next three to six months uh, with data, followed by a true pivotal study within 18 to 24 months that would then set us up for commercialization of our first product while we're working on the pipeline. Yeah, we started this conversation by congratulating you on the on the funding. Um, you've also mentioned the clinical trials there. That's We've done well to get this far into the conversation without mentioning COVID, uh, but how have you managed all that and how have you found achieving those milestones whilst all this has been going on? 
Well, we've been we've been very fortunate um, that from the timing perspective that we had completed uh, a lot of our internal R&D, as I said, preclinical data to support this first HER2 breast cancer application. And so by the time COVID really started to impact the global markets and, and, uh, and businesses, um, we had relatively little internal work to do. We'd begun manufacturing our product and we were beginning to work on the sort of administrative aspects of getting the studies lined up. Um, and so the manufacturers that we're working with are considered essential businesses because they're working on drug manufacturing and the like. And so all of our, all of our partners in manufacturing have been free to continue to operate, have not been negatively impacted by COVID. And so we've been able to keep our manufacturing plan on schedule, which has been terrific. Um, we've managed to continue to work remotely with them so that it hasn't been necessary for us to do a lot of internal R&D work in our laboratory, which has been good. We've been, uh, been able to support our manufacturers with work in our lab, but it you know, hasn't been essential for us to do new experimental work. Um, and the, the administrative aspect of dealing with the regulatory folks or the clinical sites um, in terms of getting it all lined up and ready to go um, has been fine to do that remotely. The, um, the prospect of starting the study and being able to rec recruit patients, obviously our concern is that if COVID continues to impact hospital systems in a way that uh, patients, um, cancer patients are reluctant to go in for, uh, for things that that may impact our ability to recruit patients. But so far, none of the sites that we're talking to about our study have indicated that they would not be able to start the study and able to start to recruit patients. And since we're not doing something that is, we're, we're, our study is going to be undertaken on HER2 breast cancer patients that have been diagnosed and need to begin treatment. So unless the patient is um, willing to put off their treatment, we fall right in line with their normal course of treatment. So we don't think that there, you know, this isn't a study where it would be people volunteering to do something that they don't, they don't need to do. These patients yeah. need to have their breast cancer taken care of, assessing whether they have lymph nodal involvement as part of that standard of care. And so we're piggybacking basically on the existing standard of care. So we're, we're hoping that in fact, we don't see a significant impact on our ability to recruit patients because patients should be continuing to try to seek treatment for breast cancer if they've been diagnosed. So, but we'll see, we'll yeah. have to see how that goes. And what about the, the fundraising? Were you, were you nervous kind of going into it that it might be difficult to hit the amount you were looking for? Absolutely. Um, we, we did um, this in, in March, the end of March, when the markets were highly volatile and we saw a lot of fall off in markets in general. Um, we realized that at that point in time that uh, if we attempted to wait and try to sit it out, we were at risk. And so we raised a, a, some money um, at not a particularly favorable share price, I'll admit, um, but we had very good market support. Um, so we had an oversubscribed offering that we, that we did in April um, for a small amount of money that gave us enough cushion, if you will, that we felt like, okay, we can, you know, we can now start to see our way through. But then as we continue to make progress and, um, and report that, in fact, we were still on track to start our study, our share price improved, and that allowed us the opportunity to raise additional money, the $5 million in, uh, in July. And again, there we were well oversubscribed. And I think that 
you know, the markets in general have been pretty good. Um, COVID actually has uh, inspired people to invest in the healthcare markets and biotech in general. Yeah. We, we've, we've benefited a little bit, not only from the general marketplace sentiment in biotech and healthcare, but the fact that we've been executing against our plan. And so as we, um, as we got to the July timeframe and realized that we had an opportunity to raise more money at now a, a, a favorable or more favorable share price, um, we felt much better about that. And again, we oversubscribed that. And now we're, we're, we're good for a while, right? Yeah. So we now know that we have enough money to get through our, this initial phase study and use that as an inflection point for how we move forward uh, after that. Some of the companies I've spoken to have kind of used COVID and the reduced expectations, especially if they're pre-commercial, as almost a, almost a good thing in a, in a way to give them themselves more time, focus on the product and some of the internal processes, which maybe without COVID, there'd be a bit more pressure to complete quicker. Have there been, has that been true of you guys as well? I'd say just the opposite. We, okay. we've, had, we've had to gas pedal down. I, I um, was pretty insistent that we were going to, I mean, if COVID impacted us, if, for example, one of our manufacturers had said, we've had an infection, and even though we're essential business, we've had to you know, reduce our staff and we're not going to get to your project. Or if the hospitals that we intend to do the study with came back and said, we're not going to be allowed to initiate a new clinical study um, then uh, I would say, okay, there, there's a reason that COVID is impacting us. But if COVID isn't directly impacting us, our team has been very diligent about being safe. We wear our masks all the time. You know, we come to work and we go home and that's it. Uh, we're, you know, we're very disciplined about that. Um, so, you know, my, my view has been um, if COVID isn't impacting us, then there's no reason for me to, or our company to, use COVID as an excuse to not make the progress. One of the things or topics dominating medical imaging at the moment is artificial intelligence. You can't really move uh, for the term being used. Um, but actually, when I was reading through your prospectus, there was a, a phrase in there, which probably most commonly used 30 years ago, which was the, the printer ink model uh, for your business, yeah. which is qu- what's quite unique um, about, you, about you guys. Um, can you kind of share a little bit more about how that's, that's going to work? Yeah, so there's two parts, I think, to that question that you asked. Um, So first on the printer ink side of things. So, you know, this platform that we've talked about where we've got an instrument that's able to identify these magnetic hotspots and we've got an injectable component, which is what um, allows, you know, the particles themselves that attach to the tumor to generate that magnetic signature. So the instrument is the printer and the injectable uh, nanoparticle solution is the ink. And so for every type of cancer, we'll have a different type of ink cartridge, a prostate cancer, uh, uh, ovarian cancer, et cetera. That really gives us the opportunity to monetize those two things because our our intellectual property, the patents that we have, are a method patent that says if you're going to use magnetic particles um, that have a targeting function to them and detect the magnetic signature of those particles, then you're infringing our IP. So if you make an instrument that does that detection, you'd be infringing the IP. And if you try to make a nanoparticle solution whose purpose is to generate a magnetic signature, you'd be infringing the IP. So now now we've got control, if you will, over the two halves of our printer and ink business model. And that allows us to go to some of the medical imaging companies. You know, we fully believe that strategically we we're best to try to partner with somebody. There are 40 companies that make, sell, and service medical imaging equipment. 
MRI, CTs, PETs, et cetera. Yeah. They're, already, they're already experts at that. So ideally, we'll partner with somebody in that space to help commercialize the instrumentation while we then deal with the consumable piece and make sure that we've got new prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, et cetera, tests coming in the pipeline. The AI piece that you mentioned is actually quite interesting because, and you're absolutely right that you can't, you can't blink these days without seeing AI or machine learning becoming an, an integral part of what's going on in imaging. Um, I think that we will see um, AI uh, eventually come true. Uh, you know, some portion of that um, make its way into our technology as well, whether that be improved algorithms for how to look at an MRI scan and interpret the, um, the magnetic con- the concentration of magnetic particles. So they generate MR contrast, but could you then quantify that in yeah. some way, shape, or form? Um, that's an example, I think, where uh, AI and machine learning could, could have an effect. Even within our own, um, we're looking at machine learning algorithms to help us improve the analytical piece of the, di- of the magnetic signature that we get. How do you separate the magnetic signature from other environmental magnetic noise, et cetera? So there's no question that uh, the advances that have been being made in data science with machine learning and AI, imaging is a, is a great example where those kinds of things can be applied. Like I said, you've been come into the medical imaging industry over the last four years. Um, so I suppose coming to the industry with a, a set of fresh eyes, are there any AI companies or other companies perhaps on the, on the equipment side who you see as being you know, potentially an additional game changer? There's a number of companies that are, I'd say are relatively small, maybe not highly visible, but that are working in this AI space of imaging. And I think that either they're, you know, they're likely to be an acquisition target prospectively from one of the bigger players yeah. uh, in, um, kind of thing. Um, there are some companies that are making their way on their own. There's, a, there's an Australian um, company that's uh, um, a publicly listed company um, that has some um, uh, AI machine learning in uh, MRI scans that have been, um, that have marketed it as a uh, software as a service. Okay. S-A-A-S. So if you get an MR scan, you can then, um, the doc can submit the MR scan to them and they'll do an interpretation of yeah. it. Uh, so, so I think we'll might see more of those kinds of things. Um, we're already seeing some M&A activity. So the recent uh, acquisition of, uh, I think it's Variant by uh, Siemens, for yeah. example. So I think we'll probably continue to see some of that as some of the bigger players like GE, Siemens, Philips, Toshiba, medical, those kinds of companies are looking at what's going on in some of these uh, sort of, I won't quite say peripheral spaces, but adjacent spaces as they try to continue to shore up their position in that marketplace. And that, and that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for one of those large medical device companies, medical imaging companies for us to partner with. And we've just always felt that we need human data in order for us to advance those strategic relationships. You know, they're, Everyone can look at our intellectual property portfolio. They can look at our preclinical data and say, that looks very interesting. But the first thing they're going to say then is, have you tried this on a human subject yet? So we really feel that that's why that's an inflection point for our shareholders is because that will really, once we have these human data, that will really open up our ability to um, have a substantive conversation with some strategic players that could then help us move forward into the, into the clinic and getting clinical clearance. You mentioned Siemens before. Um, 
it seems like there is a an existing relationship between you and Siemens at the moment. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and also how it came about and uh, maybe for to help kind of other startups that are in a similar stage to you? Yeah, so we signed a collaboration, small collaboration agreement with them uh, earlier this year. Um, uh, it's um, non-financial, so it's uh, they're going to contribute some technical expertise uh, to help assist us. And um, sort of to the nature of your question, that came about because uh, last year we began, as we began to accumulate some evidence that our particles generate very good MR contrast, and we published a few papers on that. Um, and some of our uh, academic collaborators have published some papers on the quality of the, of the MR image that's created by our particles. We began to be confident that in the clinical setting, uh, in addition to our hotspot detection by, uh, by, by our MagSense technology, that there could be added value in the MR space of our particles as a contrast agent. But we're not MR experts. Um, you know, our expertise is in making these nanoparticles work biologically and this hotspot uh, MagSense detection technology. So we really felt like if we were going to begin to understand how our particles could be effective as an MR contrast agent, we needed somebody who was an MR expert. Yeah. So I began knocking on the doors, if you will, of, uh, of a few of the companies. Um, and uh, we gained enough attention at Siemens um, and so, so, again, to your point about other companies, um, I made the hurdle very low for them. You know, I didn't go to them and say, we'd like you to fund $5 million of collaborative research with us. I went to them and said, we intend to look at this problem and, and, and see if our, if our particles actually have some utility, but we don't have expertise in MRI and you guys do. Would you be interesting, uh, interested to help us? All right. And so I made, I made the agreement as, as simple as possible. You provide technical expertise to us for our studies, support us, and make sure that we're generating the right MR sequences and interpreting the data appropriately. And you get to see how it works. We get to we get the expertise, and maybe that will open up a dialogue with you uh, to go forward. Yeah, and I suppose for for them, like we said, after that acquisition of Varian, they get that front row seat to what you know, what the future could hold in terms of being that complete diagnostic and therapeutic solution then going forward, which seems to be the way that some of the large imaging companies are going. Yeah, yeah. And whether Siemens ultimately ends up being interested in what we have, I can't tell you at this point in time, right? But what I do know is what they found what we were doing interesting enough that they decided they would apply some resources to it, for example, yeah. right? And so, and again, our goal would be, well, we go get these first in human data. Um, and now, um, now we have an opportunity to talk not only to Siemens, but to everybody else um, and say, here's, here's what we really have now. We've got data to support the fact that we can detect uh, whether there are tumor cells that have spread to the lymph nodes. You know, we can yeah. separate node negative patients from node positive patients. Do you want to help us commercialize that in some way, shape, or form? Um, but um, and, and we'd, be, we'd be perfectly happy if Siemens was one of the companies that wanted to do that with us. But what we did know is at the time, um, we needed expertise of somebody like them in order for us to be able to evaluate not only uh, uh, our, our own MagSense technology, but how they could, how our particles could be used in the context of an MR image. Slightly, you know, off topic, but the the company seems to be split across Australia where the clinical trials are taking place, and obviously you're in you know, California at the moment. Um, yeah, for a small company as well, how, how do you how do you find that navigating the time differences? Um, and I suppose the practicalities have been so far away. 
Yeah, um, uh, pre-COVID, it wasn't too bad. Um, you know, I, I've made trips down to Australia sort of minimally once a quarter. Um, you know, we, did, we weren't doing a lot of R&D activity in Australia. It was uh, primarily, um, for the last few years, it's been uh, investor-related aspect of things, but we've been moving closer and closer to doing our activity, some of our R&D activity in Australia. So the, the main operational R&D activity has been here in San Diego. It was relatively easy to maintain the, the, the business operations of accounting and those kinds of things in Australia. You could do that remotely fairly easily. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, and getting back and forth from the West Coast of the United States to Australia really wasn't too bad. Um, you know, it's a direct flight from LA and once a quarter, or once every six weeks, it's not too bad to be able to do that. Now that we're moving more and more of, a, of our, our activities down there, um, we uh, not and not and not being able to travel, we've had to work as effectively as we can remotely. Um, fortunately, we do have uh, uh, some resources in Australia um, on the ground there, so that's been helpful. Um, I'd say our team is pretty practiced at. Um, at least, and I know my business world is get to work uh, early in the morning. You've got about four or five hours where um, you have relatively quiet aspect of internal work. And then come around one or two o'clock in the afternoon, you know that Australia is waking up. Yeah. And you then have, um, you know, the majority of Australia morning uh, through, you know, through our afternoon uh, hours to get caught up with that. So we, we run on pretty close to a 24-hour cycle here where, you know, I come in in the morning and I've got Australia afternoons work to attend to. And then by the time it's my afternoon, it's their morning and you just keep things rolling. Yeah. And I suppose with, I know that Melbourne's badly hit at the moment, but mm. you would hope, I mean, being, being an island that COVID would be limited and it may open up sooner than what we're seeing in the U.S. at the moment. Well, and that, interestingly, that was part of our thinking back in the May timeframe of, uh, Australia had seemed to be dealing with the pandemic um, better than many other countries. We had, uh, so we had at that time, not only for the COVID, uh, there was a number of other reasons, but we had then, that's when we really committed to doing our first in human study in Australia. Yeah. We felt that we, that gave us one of the better chances uh, because they seemed to be dealing with it. Then of course, in the middle of the summer, Melbourne in particular, had a, a resurgence of the of the um, of the pandemic, and this caused them to shut down a bit more. Um, we continue to hope that they get that under control, okay. And then again, um, ha having the controls there, um, we'll be able to complete our study as expected. But yeah, generally, we we, we thought of them as being a fairly proactive in trying to make sure that they've been attentive to what they need to do. Um, uh, throughout Australia um, to deal with the pandemic. And uh, I think they're being, they're, you know, they're exercising an abundance of caution right now, which is, yeah. is good in general. Um, and um, I, I think that, you know, for us, I, I hope that that bodes well for our Q4 plan of activity and doing clinical studies. And over the next you know, six months, 12 months, what are the kind of next big milestones that we should look out for for Imagine? Yeah, so the, the immediate milestones are uh, we will continue to update um, the markets with regard to our plan to start the study in Q4. Um, so 
any any significant um, material news that would be able to, that we would need to inform our our shareholders as to whether or not that study either remains on track or if for some reason there, there were to be a problem. Um, next after that would probably be reporting um, initial uh, interim results of the first uh, X number of patients. Um, and then um, based on, on how quickly we're getting through that uh, cohort of patients for our first in human study, um, probably making an announcement uh, in the first half of next year about, okay, what does this mean now for go forward uh, in terms of our need to fund the next stages of our business? There'll be a few other things in the middle of there, you know, um, while we're, we're not, we're pretty tunnel vision on getting through this first in human study for HER2 breast cancer. As I said, we've already started work on other indications like prostate and ovarian in that and so there'll be some measure of, of um, probably some news flow associated with those other projects in our pipeline. Um, but by and large, the next 12 months is all about getting that through that inflection point and being able to identify, well, what do the human data really tell us about our ability to move forward? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for listening. Hopefully that's been insightful and opened your eyes to the potential of medical imaging startups outside of AI. If you're working for a similar startup, I'd love to hear from you, or if you have any feedback, I'm all ears. If you want to get in touch with Bob or I, please use LinkedIn or email cmconversations at charltonmorris.com. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to CM Conversations wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening.